other aspect of the uniqueness of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. The first aspect is that he is the righteous one. He, he had no sin. He deserved not to suffer, and yet he suffered for us. He took our sins and bore them in his body on the cross. That was the first aspect. The second aspect is that it happened once. This was a once and for all, one-time sacrifice, never to be repeated. This is a sacrifice of Jesus. This dying for your sins is a unique and unrepeatable event. Unrepeatable event. This means... On the one hand, that Jesus fulfills, indeed he does away with, he cancels out the Old Testament system or what we might call the Old Testament economy of animal sacrifices. Listen to these words from the letter to the Hebrews. I read from chapter 10, from verse 1. There the writer to the Hebrews, he says this, he says, The law... That is the Old Testament law of Moses, where all of these things, where all of the sacrificial system is laid out for us. For example, in the books of Exodus or in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. He says, this law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament law is not reality. It's a shadow. It's a signpost of things to come. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If they were able to make perfect, there would have come a time when those sacrifices would have been fulfilled. But they cannot make perfect. For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's to say the system of Old Testament sacrifice was designed by God to lead people to Christ, a reminder of sins. Every time those animals were slaughtered, it was a reminder to the people of their sinfulness. They were supposed to realize that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away their sin ultimately. They cannot be made perfect by that system. Rather, it's the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, which makes us perfect. Those sacrifices were a shadow. They were a signpost pointing towards Jesus, pointing towards the cross. Listen, as we continue, I want to give you these words from the book of Hebrews because they're so crucial that we understand this. From Hebrews chapter 10 now and verses 11 through 14. The writer continues, he says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what Peter says as well. That to sit down means the work is finished. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me just emphasize that again. This is such a beautiful verse. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
This one unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross has made perfect. That means from God's point of view, it's already accomplished. Perfect here means the end has been reached. Forever, that means that those people have been made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Think about that now. You would think if, if I'm still being made holy, then I'm not perfect, right? I know I still sin, therefore I can't be perfect. But we see this is, such a, this is such a beautiful truth for all of us to understand. If we belong to Christ, then his one sacrifice on the cross has made us perfect forever in God's sight. Even as until Christ returns, we are yet being made perfect, uh, sorry, made holy day by day by the Spirit of God. That's you right now. Before God, in his view, thanks to that unique sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice on the cross, you have been made perfect forever. Listen to how this is. I found this fantastic quote. This is from a guy called Ecumenius. He lived in the 6th century when they had cool names. And uh, he's famous for writing the earliest commentary on Revelation. Listen to how he comments here on this verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.18. He says here, quote, The righteous person suffers for the salvation of others, just as Christ did. This is why Peter mentions our Lord's example, since Christ did not die for his own sins, but for ours. This is the point he makes by adding the righteous for the unrighteous. For as the prophet long, told, long ago foretold, Christ did not sin at all. Now listen to this part. Furthermore, in order to emphasize the effectiveness and the completeness of Christ's sacrifice, Peter adds the key word, once. So great was his passion that however often human beings may sin, that one act of suffering is sufficient to take away all our sins. So great was his passion that however often human beings, you and I may sin, that one act of suffering is sufficient to take away all our transgressions. The Father has set us free. The Son was the ransom by which we were freed, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is freedom. As Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is freedom, guys, friends. This is freedom. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are sons, daughters, and friends of God in Christ. Now, the devil, he tries to attack us here. And, he, and what he does is he tries to paralyze our ministry for Jesus Christ. And so this is why it's so crucial that we understand this truth. On the one hand... Um, the devil tries to attack us in that we think far too little of Christ, far, far too little about Christ's suffering and death for us on the cross. We, we, we think that it cost God nothing, that it was just this easy thing. We don't understand that it cost him the life of, and the blood of his beloved son. There is that error that we can fall into of taking salvation for granted, taking the, the forgiveness of our, sin, of our sins for granted. But far more serious for us, what paralyzes our ministry for Christ and our testimony in the world is when we don't trust how powerful, how awesome, how sufficient, how effective was the sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. And what happens is 
that we get dragged down, weighed down by our sins. We let those, con- those sins where we continually, you know, we fall into them. I do as well, day by day. We let the reality of those sins define the spiritual reality of who we are. And we think, no, I'm not worthy to minister. I'm not good enough yet. I'm not holy enough yet. And we doubt. I've spoken to people here at church. We, we doubt if we're really accepted by God. And we just want to hear those words again from Ecumenius, the man with the cool name. He says, so great, so great was his passion that however, ho- however often human beings may sin, that one act of suffering is sufficient to take away all our transgressions. That's the kind of assurance that Peter wants you to get out of this. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. You are brought to God if you are in Christ The suffering and death of Jesus Christ was sufficient, efficacious, and final dealing with sin. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Not it started. And I'll keep doing this week by week as you guys offer the Eucharist. That's not what he said. He said it's finished. It's done once and for all. And this once and for all sacrifice of Christ brings us to God. That is the distance, the interruption in relationship between human beings and God on account of sin is now no more when we are in Christ. Once again, we can have intimate fellowship and communion with God. And the implications here for us should be clear. In Christ, it's when we believe on him that we are brought to God. When we believe in Christ that we are free, we are forgiven, we are made perfect, as we read in Hebrews, in that eschatological, in that end time sense that God already sees us as being having made been made perfect because of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, even though we still are being made holy by his spirit day by day now. But without faith in Christ, we are not brought to God. We cannot come to God if we don't come via the mediator, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sin and makes peace with God. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And let me say that by way of a warning, but a warning intended for you guys in love. If we do not come to God through the finished work of Christ on the cross, through his suffering and death, mightily vindicated, that is, proved to be effective by his resurrection if we don't come via jesus christ then we don't come to god at all we have to understand that no matter what our claims no matter what what our experiences are no matter how what our warm and fuzzy feelings are if we don't come via jesus christ and the work of that he did for us on the cross then we don't come to god at all it is the suffering and death of our messiah the Lord Jesus, that alone, which sufficiently but efficaciously, that means really does effectively bring us to God and that alone. You 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 guys know all that. You guys all know that old hymn, which has kind of been turned into a new hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not lean on anything else, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So continuing now to the end of verse 18, Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the body. 
That is, Jesus Christ, this is what we believe as Christians, is truly man and truly God. He's truly one of us. He's a human being like us. And he truly died in the flesh on the cross. That is, as a man. He suffered and died on the cross as a man. He died as a human being. But he was made alive by or in the Spirit. And it appears here that Peter is saying that it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who, if you know your creed, is referred to in the creed as the Lord, the giver of life. It's the Holy Spirit who is always called the giver of life. And here he gives life to us in the new birth. We need to be born again of water and spirit, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. But here it's the Spirit of God we see Peter reveal to us who... um, who unites Jesus' human spirit with his body before he is resurrected in the tomb on Easter morning. So he's put to death in the body as a man, but he's made alive in the spirit. And the spirit of God unites Jesus' human spirit, which at his death, just so, you, just so we understand this, at, Je- at the point of Jesus' death, his human spirit went straight to the presence of God. Straight to be in the presence of God. That is what he said to the thief on the cross by his side. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He went into the presence of his father. And then on the third day, the spirit of God reunites Jesus' human spirit with his human body and raises him from the dead. And guys, this is just what will happen at the resurrection for us. Jesus is the pattern for us to follow. If the Lord tarries, That's an old word for waits around. Yeah, it is. But it's the word we say it in English. Um, If the Lord tarries and doesn't return, then we will all die. But at the day of resurrection, it will be the, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who will reunite our human spirit with our human body and we will rise from the dead, be raised to new life. That's verse 18. And so now we come to one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. It really is this way. But let's remember, as I said at the start, to keep the main thing, the main thing. Let me read to you again, verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, again from 1 Peter 3. After being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Martin Luther wrote about this text, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know what Peter means. Where did Jesus go? I don't know. Who did he go to? I don't know. And Martin Luther didn't know either, which is kind of reassuring. Um. Probably the greatest theologian of the Western Church, St. Augustine. He wrote a letter to his friend Euodius, because his friend Euodius, who was also a bishop, uh, had written Augustine a letter saying, dude, what is this about? He probably used other words in Latin. And uh, Augustine wrote, he's like, the question which you put to me, I'm quoting, the question which you put to me about the spirits in hell is one which confuses me profoundly. And then he then proceeded to write like a massive letter trying to get to grips with it, which I skimmed through last night. Augustine certainly knew how to write a lot about things he didn't know about. I'm just kidding. 
So I figure if Augustine, the greatest theologian in the Western Church, and Martin Luther, the greatest theologian of the Reformation period, had no idea what this verse is talking about, then I can relax if I don't fully get it either. So we're in good company if we admit that this text is difficult and it's hard to know exactly what Peter is talking about here. But we want to take the, the Bible seriously. We want to take the Bible seriously, so I want to take briefly a few minutes to, to look at this text with you and I want to touch on a couple of the main ideas on what this passage means. All right? There it is. So there are, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go briefly through three possible um, interpretations. The first interpretation says that these spirits that Jesus preached to, that he proclaimed to, that they are the souls of the faithful of the Old Testament. So people like Abraham, Moses, David, the people of Israel who were faithful in the Old Testament, that, that, these, are the, that these spirits are their souls, and the prison is simply the place where they remained after they died awaiting Christ. Because that was the Old Testament understanding that um, no matter whether righteous or sinful, after death, in the Old Testament, you went down to Sheol or Hades, that is the, the, the world or the, the underworld, and you waited there for the day of resurrection. So that's the idea. This is the interpretation. And Christ now comes to them having, having made redemption. He now goes and he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims this redemption to the souls of the Old Testament faithful. That's option one. Option two. These spirits are the souls of those who died in Noah's flood. We read that Peter goes on to talk about the flood. That these are the spirits of all of those people who didn't repent and join Noah on the ark. Okay, so all the people who were alive in Noah's day didn't ignored his message, didn't repent, died in the flood. And they're kept in Hades, the Greek name for the underworld. And they now hear the gospel proclaimed by Christ after his death, before he's resurrected in the sense of before he exits the tomb on Easter morning. That's the second interpretation. And the third interpretation is the spirits are the fallen angels of Genesis 6 verse 1. And the prison is where they are kept bound and where they hear a proclamation of judgment by Christ. And just to refresh your memory, in Genesis 6.1, we read, these are the days of Noah, just before the flood came. We read these words, Genesis 6.1 and 2. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to men, the sons of God, which is an Old Testament phrase meaning angels, as in angelic beings, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. So that third option is, these spirits are fallen angels who had gone down, and even though it said married there, it's actually referring to they had sexual relations with human women. So, sounds kind of a bit out there, right? I just want to briefly say, the ancient church pretty much took option one or two. That is, they understood that these spirits are the spirits of human beings who died before the first advent of Christ. So before Christ came, born of the Virgin Mary. That is, before they had opportunity to believe on the gospel. They died before the Messiah had come. They never had a chance to hear the gospel. And so Christ, having been victorious over death, remember the spirit had already made him alive again, had reunited his human spirit and body. So in some sense, the resurrected Christ went to this prison and preached to them. 
that, they, that the early church believed that Christ then went and preached the gospel to all of the dead who had perished before his first coming to give them the opportunity of believing on the gospel. And I just want to give you a taste of that. This is Clement of Alexandria, who writes the following, quote, In order to deliver all those who would believe, Christ taught those who were alive on earth at the time of his incarnation. We read that about that in the Gospels. And these others acknowledged him when he appeared to them in the lower regions, and thus they too benefited from his coming. From his coming. Going, he preached to those who were in hell, appearing to them, When the gatekeepers of hell saw him, they fled. The bronze gates were broken open, the iron chains were undone, and the only begotten Son of God shouted with authority to the suffering souls, according to the word of the new covenant, saying to those in chains, Come out, and to those in darkness, be enlightened. In other words, he preached to those who were in hell, so that he might save all who would believe in him. For both those who were alive on earth during the time of his incarnation, and those who were in hell, had a chance to acknowledge him. Okay, so that's what the early church, by and large, believed. Now, most modern interpreters tend to go, however, with option three, the kind of the crazy option, if you want. That is, the spirits are the fallen angels of Genesis 6, and the prison is where they are kept bound and hear the proclamation of judgment, not the proclamation of the gospel, but the proclamation of judgment by Jesus Christ having been victoriously raised from the dead. And I just want to give you um, a couple of reasons why. This fits with the fact that the word spirits in the New Testament always refers to non-human spiritual beings unless qualified by some other word. So whenever the New Testament talks about spirits, it's actually talking usually about um, angelic beings or demons rather than human beings. And if we read on into 2 Peter or even the closely related letter of Jude in the New Testament, it seems that this could be what Peter is talking about here. Let me just read to you from 2 Peter 2.4. There Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So that's what Peter goes on to say in his second letter to the same churches. And therefore, the idea here is that Christ preached judgment to these spirits. He came to them as a conquering king, a conquering hero, showing through his ministry, his death, and now his resurrection, that, that the ministry of evil, the ministry of the devil, the ministry of unpure spirits had been defeated once and for all. And in, in one sense, he goes down there to say, Guys, I'm the king. You lost. But in much more reverent and triumphant terms. However, 1 Peter 4, verse 6, may well indicate that Peter does indeed have human beings in mind. Let me read that to you. 1 Peter 4, 6 says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So we'll just have to see what Brandon does with that one next week. To finish, though, what is important is I want to say that we must reject any interpretation which says that in general human beings are given a second chance after they die before the resurrection and the judgment. 
And St. Augustine, St. Augustine, sorry, he calls this idea absurd. Firstly, why would Peter be encouraging the church to stand fast in the midst of really tough persecution if they could just relax because there's a second chance after death anyway to turn to Christ? That makes no sense. It makes no sense. And Augustine says that this understanding would actually lead us to stop preaching the gospel here on earth. Since the idea is that if that people who don't hear the gospel during their lives get a second chance after death. And if we preach the gospel now, there's a risk that somebody would reject it and therefore go to eternal damnation. Therefore, the idea would be, well, let's stop preaching the gospel at all because then nobody can reject it. And then everybody, as soon as they're in hell, will get a second chance to respond. And Augustine says, he says, this is completely absurd, foolish. This is not what the Bible says. The gospel, the Bible clearly says, go and preach the gospel to all nations and then the end will come. Alrighty. So Peter uses the example of Noah, which he often does in his letters because he wants to set up the idea of salvation from judgment. That's what he's talking about here. He wants to set up the idea of salvation being saved from judgment. And that's what we need to understand Friends, there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. God is patient. He is very patient. He is long-suffering. He desires, Paul says, that all should come to salvation, that all should come to a knowledge of him. But there will come a day when the age of grace, the age of the church, shall come to an end and judgment shall come. And as we look forward into Second Peter, we'll see that idea take a far more prominent place in what Peter writes. But for now, let me just remind you what Paul did as he preached in Athens in Acts 17. He says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, there is a day that is set with God, when he will judge the world with justice. We don't have to worry about God being unjust. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There is a day of judgment coming. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do I live in light of that truth? Do I live in light of that truth? It's similar, that's why Peter uses the example of Noah, it's similar to the days of Noah. It took Noah years and years, by some counts 120 years to build the ark. Year after year, as that boat got bigger, he called people to repent. And he warned them, the judgment is coming, that flood will come. But only eight were saved. Only eight were saved. And Peter is making the same point here. Just like Noah in his day, the Christians he's writing to are a small, persecuted minority, surrounded by a majority that is disobedient to God. And so there are two things that I want to draw out of this uh, for you guys. Firstly, are we willing? Are we willing to open our mouths and warn about the coming judgment? Are we willing to do that? It just sounds so unloving, doesn't it? It's just, you know, you're not the life of the party if you warn about God's judgment. Put it that way. But in reality, it is truly loving to warn people of danger. If my young son... <laughs> is about to touch that burning hot stove. I'm not like, ah, oh, I don't want to spoil his day. I'm like, 
I want to warn him because I love him. Now we can think about the way in which we talk about God's judgment. We need to do so in a winsome and loving way. But guys, we need to warn about the coming judgment. That's what Peter is saying here. Do we realize it's coming and are we willing to open our mouths about it? And secondly, for all of us here, assurance. Again, that's Peter's main concern here. Just like Noah and his family were delivered out of the judgment, saved out of that flood, if you are in Christ, if you trust in that once and for all sacrifice for your sins, you are safe. You are completely safe. And you will be delivered from the coming judgment. For Christ is right now reigning at the right hand of the Father. So let me come now to our next verses as we uh, draw to a close here. We continue from in the second part of verse 20 here in, in 1 Peter 3. In, in that ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we come to the second of those tricky places in our text this evening, and we're almost done. So this text is a stumbling block for some um, because the text reads, baptism saves you. A bit awkward if you're not a Roman Catholic. What? Or a Lutheran? Sorry. What does that mean? What is Peter talking about here? Baptism saves us. Again, remember Peter's main point is to give us assurance, to show us why, even if we suffer for doing right, even if we suffer for being a Christian, we're still blessed because Christ has suffered for us. He's now raised from the dead and he's ascended to heaven where he reigns from the Father. That's what, what Peter is trying to to tell us. And remember, we were talking about a moment ago the salvation of Noah and his family from judgment. And that's the same idea here. You guys can be, you can have full assurance because you are going to be saved from the judgment. And now he's pointing to the sign that shows us that we're saved, namely baptism. Peter is linking the flood of Noah and God's rescue of Noah and his family to the baptism that Jesus institutes for everyone who would follow him in the New Testament. God's saving of Noah and his family in the ark through the waters of judgment, Peter is saying that's a picture of what baptism means for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus. And basically, the idea is really simple. The idea is this. Baptism symbolizes death. Baptism symbolizes death. Jesus says this of his own suffering, coming suffering and death in Luke 12 and verse 50, he says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. He looks forward towards his death, and he says, That's a baptism i got to go through, guys. And Paul makes this so clear in Romans 6. He says, Don't you know, you Christians, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. It's really simple. Don't try this at home, but if you get plunged underwater, submerged underwater, you die. And so the ritual of baptism is to symbolize our being joined to Christ in his death. 
the waters of the flood of Noah, they were waters of destruction. They destroyed and brought death. But some were saved from those waters by being brought through the ark, by being in the ark and brought through. The waters of baptism symbolize this. They're waters of death. But we're saved through them. That is, we come back up out of the water. We don't do Christian baptism by holding someone down in there. We raise them back up. We raise them back up. The waters of baptism symbolize this, that we are saved through them by being united to Christ in His resurrection. Christ came through His baptism. And so do we when we're united to Him. Therefore, as verse 21 says here, baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. The saving power of baptism is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the sign, the seal that God gives us to say, you participate in the resurrection of Jesus. You belong to him. But Peter makes two more comments that I want to look at very briefly now about how baptism saves us. How baptism saves us. Let me just read the verse again. He says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So the water is not magical. The water is not magical. It's not about the normal effect of water, that it washes us clean of dirt on the body. Rather, it's because of God's promise and God's power that baptism saves us. Not as mere water. It's not the water. But it's because it's the water of baptism. Because when we do this baptism, it's connected with the word of God and it's done in the name of Jesus. According to the command and the promise of Jesus, the working of the Holy Spirit. This means that baptism is the sign and seal, not of outward washing, it's not like having a shower, but of inward washing, that we are washed clean of all our sin, shame, and guilt by the blood of Christ alone. And this is where Peter is headed with his second phrase. So we're washed clean of our sin. We're washed clean of our shame and our guilt. This is what Peter is saying when he says here, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Now, this is also, interestingly enough, all of these things happen in like one text. It's like, I don't know what Peter was thinking. This is also a very tricky phrase to translate. And if you look at different Bible translations, they'll have a different phrasing here. There are different ways of understanding this phrase. But it's the Word of God. We want to take it seriously. So I just want to say here, it seems to me that the wording of the ESV, as opposed to the NIV, which I read you before, captures the idea better here than the NIV. So let me just read. The NIV says, a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. But the ESV says here, an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, the NIV is saying, um, we pledge to have a clear conscience towards God as we approach the waters of baptism. Whereas the ESV understands the text to mean that at baptism we trust in the finished work of Christ and we make an appeal on the basis of what Christ has done. God, will you cleanse my conscience and will you forgive me my sins? And this fits in, I think, more with what Peter has been saying in all of this. He's giving these guys assurance. He's giving them something to, to build their lives on, to trust God about, to have confidence about. 
Peter has said it's Christ's death once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that brings us into God's presence. And so we're brought into God's presence on the basis of Christ's or a basis of God's grace alone. So Peter's not focusing on what we bring to God in baptism, making a pledge of that we're going to live with a clear conscience, but rather at baptism we can be confident because we're resting in what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done for us. And so let me finally read this last verse, verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Christ, having suffered and died for us, once and for all to bring us to God, he's been raised to new life. He's ascended into heaven and he sits at God's right hand. So as we read at the very start in verse 314, hey, guys, even if you suffer, For what's right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats and don't be frightened. There's no need for fear or fright. Whatever the circumstances of your life might be, whatever the world in which we live in collectively might look like or the way things might be developing, there is no need to be frightened. There is no need to worry about the threats of the enemy and you are most definitely blessed. Jesus is in the throne room of God. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's reigning. He's reigning over all authorities, all angelic powers, all demons and unclean spirits. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And that should give us so much confidence. So much confidence. We have the confidence today that once and for all Christ died for us. It's finished. We are free. We are called to freedom. We are sons and daughters and friends of God. We have the confidence and the assurance that Jesus Christ reigns, that all authority is under him. And so that should give us, that should push our, our chins up as we go out the door to say, it doesn't matter what they throw at us. It doesn't matter what they do out here, what they, what they do against us. We know, just like in the days of Noah, we're safe and saved because we belong to the precious Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the time in the Word tonight. And you see that this is a, a passage that is difficult for us to understand, and yet you knew that when you inspired the Apostle Peter to write it. And so I just pray you'd encourage us all to take your Word seriously and to desire to look deeply into the things that it teaches, to be faithful to you, to know that the word as it's preached and taught and as we read it, that it is the means that you give us that we are changed. Changed into your likeness, changed to, to love you more, changed to explore and find you ever more deeply in the scriptures. I just pray for all of us here tonight. I really pray that we would be assured. Give us the gift of faith, Lord. Help us to trust you. Give us boldness because we know that we're safe in you. I pray for those especially who struggle to understand that they're accepted in you because of what Christ has done, that they would understand that it is finished, that their sins are forgiven. I pray for those of us who struggle with the fear of man when we go out there to open our, 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 our mouths to speak the truth. Help us to understand you have all authority, Lord. And I pray for those of us who tend to worry, who, who look at what's happening in the world and we are scared or fearful of what the future may bring. 
Help us to be comforted tonight, Lord Jesus, that you sit at the right hand of God the Father and that all things are under you. Amen.